Ladies, aren't you glad that we have a wonderful Savior to guide us, to lead us, to help us day by day through His Holy Spirit and through His precious Word? Would you take, please, with me your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we have spent some time looking at the instructions here given to wives the instruction given to husbands, and the instruction given to us all in all verses 1 through 12. And as I began back in dealing with the wives and reading the section there from verses 1 through 6, we came across the topic here of the wife's adorning. And I made the comment, we're going to come back to this. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to come back to the section here in Address to the Wives relating to her adornment. Now, I wonder how many of you ladies, when you get dressed, you think of adorning yourself. You know, we, we don't always use that word, do we? But it's an interesting word to use in this context. So I'd like to read the passage here, but we're not going to just spend time here in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're also going to be going over to the letter to Timothy, the first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we have some similar instruction regarding adornment. And we will also be looking in Titus chapter 2 at some other instructions of how this is practically applied. And then we will be drawing in some different other miscellaneous scriptures from different parts of the Bible. But the key passages to note here, and if you're one who writes in your Bible, it's very important for me when I study my Bible and read my Bible to write cross-references, meaning here what other references may speak on this topic. So there in 1 Peter chapter 3, right there right around verse 3, um, it is helpful to write 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. And then when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, right there beside that verse, write 1 Peter 2 or 1 Peter 3 verse 3. Because they go together and they're important to understand. We're going to look at some things this morning. And in 1 Peter, we're going to observe that the adorning that a woman dresses herself is not just that which is on the outside, but is that which is on the inside as well. It is a priority point. And there are some specific principles established here in 1 Peter chapter 3, as well as in 1 Timothy chapter 2. You might hear that word principle. What's that mean? Well, it's a very important word in many different aspects of the Scriptures. But when it comes to this particular topic, which is extremely practical, um, it is an important word. A principle is something that gives us a foundation upon which to build. We have it as the basis. So, Oftentimes, when people have come to the topic of clothing and modesty and dress, um, 
oftentimes we flip it upside down. And that is we start with the specifics or we get rules about it and we start detailing very specific things about clothing. And uh, there's nothing wrong with specifics, but oftentimes specifics are given and no principle is given. There is no foundation. And it's very fascinating to me that for the most part, when the scripture deals with the clothing of the believer, that it deals with it on a principle level. Basics. Basics of principle upon which specifics can be built or drawn from. And it has to do with some key words. So this morning, we're going to spend some time understanding some key words, which really are basics of the principle of clothing. Let me make another comment here. The specific principles given here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and over in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2 are specifically given to women. May I give you men all a heads up? It doesn't leave you out of it. There's some important pieces for you too. And in fact, um, really in many regards, the principles that are laid down for women apply both to men and women. And in fact, if you actually go back into the Old Testament, as we're going to take a little glimpse back there, you'll find that some of the more specific details given regarding clothing actually had to do with men rather than women. But their basic principles, I believe, apply both to men and to women. So this morning, we're going to talk about the topic of clothing. What do we wear? And boy, is that a sensitive topic. I am a little nervous bringing it up. Um, I might, my, I, literally, my knees are shaking a little bit here, and that doesn't always happen. And part of the reason for that is because I want to be careful with this, recognizing and knowing that this is a very personal topic. And I'm also wanting to be sure that what I say, I say with authority, not pastoral authority, not me as a person in my autonomy of authority, but that it is the authority of God's Word. Because this issue, a thousand and one opinions could be held upon, and it all has to come back to what does God say? Key, key piece of it. And I am seeking this morning that I go not beyond what God has said and that I also understand and do not try to explain away what God has said and that we are able to understand it clearly. The topic may spark in your mind some questions. Um, please, I beg you, jot those down and give them to either myself or my wife. Because that's another piece of this, is that this topic can't really be addressed in its entirety in this crowd. We have children of all different ages, and we have men and women mixed. Some married, some not married. 
And there are certain aspects of this topic and that, or specifics that can be drawn from these principles, and even some of the principles, which are, in some cases, awkward, and in other cases, simply inappropriate to discuss specifically in such a crowd. And so, we had actually originally planned for this afternoon for me to have a time with the men and boys, and my wife was going to share with you ladies and girls, um, but I have some sickies at home, so we're not sure how that's going to work. Um, and uh, so we'll see what we have to do this afternoon. But that will happen sometime. Whether or not it happens this afternoon is yet to be seen. But um, in the meantime, and even in anticipation of that, even if it happens this afternoon, um, please jot down your thoughts, jot down some notes um, and questions, because much of this is an issue that is, is not simply an issue of, being, of, of giving it to you, but really of you taking what is God has revealed and you personally, to get as an individual, together as husband and wife, and in cases other with children, uh, moms with daughters, fathers with sons, in having the conversation more specifically. It is a very important topic. It is a topic that is a problem in our modern society and culture. You, you can hardly, I don't know, I think you can still go to Aldi without being visually assaulted with immodesty. You can't go to grocery stores. You can't drive down the highway without being exposed to indecency and immodesty. It's an important issue. And considering our society, it's important for us to be, as we'll learn, one of the issues connected or one of the principles laid out for us of being sober, that is having understanding, because we live in such a society, we have the danger of being unconsciously desensitized to what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. We live in a world where, really, it's interesting, um, oftentimes in the Bible, the word for world is cosmos. And it speaks of the world as being a structured, ordered system. And it's not just speaking of the fact that the earth is a precisely tuned system, but also that um, there are systems that are structured in society. And it's also interesting because that same word cosmos, which is translated world, we use it in English all the time. Cosmetics. Cosmetics comes from the Greek word of cosmos, which is the order of system, the system of order. And so, if you didn't know that, cosmetics is putting yourself in order. That's the literal idea and meaning of cosmetics. And it applies as well to our clothing. And it's tied into more than just our own little cosmetics and how we dress ourselves, but it is tied to those who design our clothes. Few of us design our clothes. And so that is tied to a system and the question is, who directs that system, and how is that system directed? And are we alert to things that that system may be trying to include in our fashion? 
And I'm not just talking about the the movie stars or the celebrities who wear shocking clothing. For indeed, we might say and look and see some of that and say, well, of course that is indecent or immodest or inappropriate. But then do we see it on the basic standard shelves of Walmart? And how do we shop? How do we How do we interact with the cosmos in which we live, this world in which we live, and how do we make discernments, and how do we make decisions as to how our wardrobe will be designed? God has blessed us with some principles, some truths that are very, very, very important for us to understand. And sadly, I'm concerned that as we begin to look into some of these principles, the church, and even our church here, are ignorant of these principles. Just the principles. And even more concerning, ignorant of how to apply them Let me give an example. There is a key word used in relation to clothing in your Bible that is this, shamefacedness. Now, I don't want you to raise your hand, but do you think you could write a definition of that word right now? Think about it. Shamefacedness. We're to array ourselves with shamefacedness. Well, that word you might even begin to think about, and you may come up with some ideas of what it means, but do you really understand what it means and then know how to apply it? This is just one example of a principle that is established for us in Scripture, and one reason many of us may have, in fact, this church, I can look out over the audience and know, has a position, has a standard, you have a standard in what you wear and why you wear it. But do you know why you hold that position and why you have that standard? And I submit to you that if you don't know the meaning of the word shamefacedness, you are missing one of the key and most basic principles to how we clothe ourselves. And there's some other words that are like, uh, that are also connected in relation to this. And so, what I'd like to do now is to begin by reading these instructions. These instructions that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write here in 1 Peter chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul to write over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Follow with me here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it's speaking of the wives. Well, we have to start in chapter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any, speaking of the husbands, obey not the word, that is the word of God, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, the way of life, the way that you talk and walk and live. How? Well, they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, 
Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. And so we have these instructions regarding the adorning of the wife in the context of submission, which actually is very fascinating to me. Do you know why? Because husbands have quite frequently opinions about their, what their wives ought to wear. Sometimes good, sometimes not good. And here we're dealing with the question of subjection, and all of a sudden it's also dealing with the adorning. And notice the before it goes into the adorning, what they behold. What do the unbelieving husbands behold in their wives? Verse 2, they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Here we have one of our first key words and principles, chaste. What's that? That is a purity. That is a holiness. That is being different and being set apart. And as we find out in context, especially flipping back to the previous chapter or to chapter 1, it is about being holy as God is holy. And so here, in all manner of conversation, in over in chapter 1, we are to be holy. And here now, the wife is specifically given instruction that her conversation, the way that she lives, the way that she talks, is to be holy, it is to be pure, it's to be chaste. And notice it says here, coupled with fear. That's interesting. In this context here, you may imagine you have a husband who is unbelieving, who would want to dress his wife up in a way that would not be chaste. Her fear need not be with her husband, but this is a question of a fear of God. It ties in previously, earlier in the chapter, or, or in the previous chapter, where in all of these matters of subjection, it says, fear God. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, fear God. And then as we continue on in this whole passage here, we, we see that this idea of the fear of God is priority. And so, the first principle of how we clothe ourselves is, is our way of life of clothing ourselves chaste? Is it in a holy, a way that is set apart to God? And is it coupled with fear? Not a fear of your peers, or of your husband, or of society, but is it coupled with a fear of God? A fear of God. We don't dress to please the world around us, to please our friends, to please society, or even to please our husbands or wives. We dress to please God. And in fact, as we continue on in this, if you look at the end of verse 4, it speaks of the adorning being of great value in the sight of God. 
Here it's going into the inner man. But the inner and the outward are connected, as we shall see. So the first principle is that our clothing and entire way of life be chaste, holy, pure, coupled with fear, and that is a fear of God. End of verse 6 also speaks of this word of fear, and and here speaks of it in the context that we be not afraid with any amazement. That is, is that we have a fear of God so that the fear of man, or we need not be afraid of man or of our friends, of any amazement here is of, of what they may do to us because we have it in a proper relationship and role with God. And so then this admonition, admonition is given. These wives living a life that is holy, pure, in the fear of God. And then it deals with their adorning outwardly in verse 3, and their adorning inwardly in verse 4. And it says that it not be on the outward adorning. Let's look at this. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. What does this mean? And what does it not mean? So it says here, if we were to jump around here, let's, who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair. Well, plating the hair is a fancy word for fancy hairdos or braiding of the hair, or of the wearing of gold, or of the putting on of apparel. And here it says, let it not be these things. Well, as I look out over the crowd this morning, I see a lot of people who have done something with their hair this morning, and I see some gold, even if it's but your wedding ring, as I wear. And I see everyone who has put on apparel. So, obviously, what is being stated here is not to say that you don't tidy your hair and that you don't wear clothes and that you don't wear any jewelry. Obviously, that's not the point. So, what is the point? Well, as we look at this verse and then the next verse, we're going to find out that the point is your priority. So, he says, let not your adorning be that on the outward of doing your hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on clothes. But rather, he says, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So in contrasting and comparing verses 3 and 4, we find out that there is a contrast made and an emphasis and priority given. Most of us, if not all of us, took care this morning to do something with our hair, to adorn ourselves in clothing, maybe even put on jewelry. But did you take time to adorn the inner man of the heart? Every day we take time to adorn our outward selves. And the appeal here is is to consider how we adorn our outward selves and to consider 
the priority of it in relation to the heart. And what is the priority? The hidden man. You all look quite well this morning. You all look for the most part in order. But if we could see the hidden man, would we see the same? If we could see the real you on the inside, would we see it adorned? Would we see it as something here? I love the word ornament. We don't normally think of ourselves as ornaments. You know, that's things we put on Christmas trees. But sometimes we decorate ourselves as if we were ornaments and we make ourselves so pretty we could be on Christmas trees, right? But what's the inside look like? What's what no one can see look like? you remember back in history, there was a man named Samuel who was sent to anoint a king, and he was looking at the outward appearance of many of Jesse's sons, and God told him over and over, don't look on the outward, but look on the heart, because that's how God sees. And so Samuel kept seeing the outside, and that's all he could see. And God said no, and God said no, and God said no, because even though they looked strong and they looked big and they had their hair combed, apparently, it doesn't say that, I'm adding it. They, they're, they're on the, the hidden man of the heart was not that. And so God rejected them. And in the end, it was the, it was the youngest. You remember David. Now, just to clarify, as we're going to find out here, the priority is on the inside. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care about what comes on the outside. God does care about how you adorn the outside. We're going to find that over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's the reason why we have to keep these in parallel. Because God does care about how the outside appears. But the priority begins with the heart. I've met many people throughout my life. Some who have very high standards of how they dress. And then it seems that something happens, and it seems they have no standards. Do you know why that troubles me? There may be nothing wrong with the standards. They may be very drawn from biblical principle. But their priority was on the standard, the rule, the law that they had either been imposed upon them or had made themselves. And there was not an adorning of the hidden man of the heart to go with it. It has to begin on the inside. You can dress, and you may be this morning, dressing because this is the only way you'd get out of the house with your dad. Can I appeal to you? It's not about your dad or your husband. It's about the Lord. And regardless of what rules you've established for yourself, is the priority on the hidden man of the heart. Here it's given two specific pieces of it. And this is fascinating, actually, as it relates to clothing. For the ornament here is spoken of as an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Start with the word spirit. 
Spirit has to do with a lot of different parts of who we are on the inside. It impacts a lot of how we feel and our emotions. It also has a very key piece of how we relate to other people and our relationship with God. Our union, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is a part of who you are on the inside that really impacts everything about you and in fact can even impact your body. So your spirit is a part of you on the inside. And here it's speaking of a spirit that is meek and that is quiet. What is meek? I wonder how many of you have, have commended a coworker this week and said, you're very meek today. Thank you for being meek today. Never use that word? How about with your children? Do you ever come to your children and say, I was very pleased to see your meekness this morning? You know, I suggest to you we need to actually start using that word because we need to know what that word means and we need to see and use it in our world because it's an important word. The word meekness has the idea of being under control, but not just under control. In the Greek, as it's hard to translate into English, it carries the idea of being under control, under incredible pressure, and resulting in a kindness, a tenderness. You catch those different aspects? Being under control, in the midst of pressure, resulting not in a hard, calloused, mean person, but in one who is kind and gentle. So you can think of a lot of different situations in which you're under pressure at work, at home. Kids have a really good job of pushing our buttons, you know, those pressure points that cause us to, right? Well, that's, meekness is not that, Meekness is in the midst of all of that pressure, having a control, but not a control that's mean and abrasive and hard, but a power, a control that is kind and gentle. Meekness. It's a spirit of meekness. This is fascinating, actually, when you take it into the context of the outward adorning How often do you get pressured to do this, do this, do that, and do this? Either from your spouse or from the fashion society world or from your friends. How often do you get that pressure? And it's not just in the context of clothing and fashion. It's encompassed here, and the passage description is in all aspects of life, of a meekness, that is, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of oppression, having a power, a control that is gentle and kind. God says that this is of great price. Now, let me tell you something. You see that there? In the sight of God of great price. Now, I want to talk about this, and then we'll come back to the question of, of uh, quiet, the word quiet. What's the greatest treasure 
you have of anything. Or let's just limit it to possessions rather than people. Because I imagine you all would say that people are your greatest possessions. They're not really possessions, but they're your greatest treasures. So let's think of what you can, you, your people, you can, the things that you can have. What's your greatest treasures? Now, let me put it in perspective. God owns everything. He uses gold as pavement, black top, gold top. You know, the things we think of as of great price, he uses to walk on. Now, consider what this is. Wow, this is a big deal. The spirit of meekness is of great price in the sight of God, but also a quiet spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, it carries the idea of a quietness that is peaceful. You'll read throughout your Bibles, and the land rested from war. Or it will say, and the land was quiet. It doesn't mean that there were no birds or that there was no noise. It means that there was peace. Well, think of your spirit and how often there are things that trouble your spirit, that stir your spirit, that rile your spirit, that trouble your spirit. And God says, may your adorning be an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, a spirit that is at peace, at rest. It doesn't mean that you'd never say anything. It doesn't mean that you don't speak your opinion. Some have twisted it to say that. That's not what it means. It's about having a rest in your spirit. Now, with that being the case, taking in a proverb from the Old Testament where it speaks of a woman who is contentious and who is troublesome, it is true that a woman who is contentious and one who is noisome and troublous, in that context, is speaking of the idea of one, it's like a drip, drip, drip. You ever had a drip, drip, drip that just was about ready to drive you crazy? Proverbs says that's what a contentious woman can be like. Or he even in Proverbs, it also says that it'd be better to dwell in a, in a terrible place than to dwell in the richest place with a contentious woman. And so there's, there's an aspect of that, but the reason why that's contentious and noisome is because there's not this peace. Again, this doesn't mean that you don't speak or you're always quiet. No, please speak. Please Please communicate. Please be in communication. That's not what it's talking about. It's speaking of a spirit that is at rest, a spirit that is at peace. And I, can I tell you something? The only way that you or I will be able to adorn our inner man with this kind of spirit is to be joined with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who will produce this in our lives. In fact, meekness is specified in Galatians chapter 5 explicitly as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Not the same exact parallel, but also so is peace. We need the Holy Spirit for these to be real. And so this is really an admonition in many regards that as we are taking and considering how we dress ourselves, and I don't know, men's, uh, men and women have this problem where they're trying to decide what to wear, and they're, 
I, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but you can in your own hearts. Um, been troubled by your, your wardrobe, by what you're putting on? Um, you guys, I, I'll let you into a little, a little troublesome of your pastor, and you might be like, whoa, that's a little personal, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. In the last few months, I've lost 35 pounds, and so much of my clothes is way out here, and it's baggy. And about every morning, I get dressed, and I'm like, but you know what? I don't want to go buy new clothes because I want to still lose a few more pounds. And so here I'm wearing baggy clothes everywhere I go, and sometimes it's embarrassing. You know what I'm reminded of just in these, studying this passage? Oh, may thy inner man be meek and quiet. It's not about the outside. That's just a little silly illustration, isn't it? But I hope it helps you to see how we don't need to be troubled by the silly little things. But as we rest in the Spirit of God, be at peace. The admonition here is given that we are the children, women are the children here of holy women in the past who adorned them such being in subjection. Which, by the way, just a little caveat of principle here. If a husband's asking you to dress inappropriately, dress in the fear of God. There's still aspects of, doesn't deny subjection, but it's in the fear of God. And so we see these principles. The first is, is that our entire conversation is chased in the fear of God, coupled with fear. Secondly, the priority is not on the outside, but needs to be on the inside. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here we have a, a passage also dealing with the role of women and the role of women particularly in the church. And in the context here, he, he writes in 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. There needs to be a prayer. Here in this context, um, particularly dealing with in the church of God. In fact, as we continue through this passage, instructions are going to be given regarding women, instructions are going to be given regarding the bishop, instructions are going to be given regarding deacons and deacons' wives, and instructions are climaxed here in this all in chapter 3 and verse 15, where he writes, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. How we ought to behave ourselves in the church of the living God. And some of the admonitions here are actually given to men and as they pray. And then it deals in verses 9 and 10 with women and actually deals with how they dress. We need to look at this. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. 
here we have some very specific instructions given. And we'd like to look at them piece by piece. Let me deal with the last part of that where it says not with, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. This again carries at least a priority balance of how you dress. It also carries a question of modesty in the sense of what is appropriate. And here is why it doesn't mean that you never would braid your hair or wear gold or wear pearls or wear costly array. And how do I know that? Is because in several passages throughout Scripture, um, the adorning and the jewelry adorned on a woman is used as a symbol and as a picture of God clothing us in his salvation and rejoicing over us. And it is carried all the way from the Old Testament all the way through Revelation where it carries the idea of this adorning and in Isaiah sets the early precedent of it of even of the adorning of jewelry. So it doesn't mean an absolute not of it. But here in the context, it's particularly the church. It's an appropriateness question. It's an appropriateness question. There are many occasions in which to dress up in fancy clothes is inappropriate. Remember, you may remember last year after my brother's wedding, I came the next day wearing my tuxedo. Everybody looked at me strange. And I made the point to you then that, you know, I wouldn't wear this tuxedo all around everywhere. It was perfectly appropriate for me to wear it the day before at my brother's wedding, but it was actually even a little bit inappropriate for me to wear that Sunday morning, especially when I was preaching. It was a distraction. So a similar here is that it not be a distraction in the church. It at least has that significance. Many have carried it further. Many have carried it further, and I would respect their conscience in that matter. So let's come back to the actual specific instruction regarding adornment. It says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Now, the word modest also is one reason why I made the comment I make regarding the broidered hair, the gold, the pearls, and the costly array. Um, modesty is not just about the appropriateness in covering of nakedness or shame it also carries with it the idea of appropriateness and context. You would wear something different to church than you would wear if you were working out in the garden. You would wear something in different places in a different context that would be of different emphasis and modesty. Just again, imagine the one who is always coming to church in the flashy, expensive jewelry. Rewind culture and time. Most of us wear very inexpensive jewelry if we wear jewelry. Very inexpensive. You can get costume jewelry for very cheap. In fact, a lot of people don't even own real pearls. And in this context here, these were very specific symbols of wealth. And it was a distraction in the church. And so it ties in with this idea of modest. But modest is not just in that sense of one who is appropriate in how they dress. It, in the sense of the lavishness or the flashiness or the 
elaborateness or the costliness of the clothing. It also comes with the idea of the word here used, shamefacedness. Shamefacedness. What does that word mean? In the Greek, its root, its root word is the same word connected to the word fear of God. Having a respect, a reverence, an awe, a fear of God. But it also carries a greater significance. And the English word here, shamefacedness, brilliantly describes it if you understand it. Shamefacedness, you may jump to the conclusion, means to be embarrassed. It does not mean to be embarrassed. In fact, it means the exact opposite. It doesn't mean that your face turns red and you're embarrassed. It's not what it means. It means the exact opposite. It means that you know what is shameful and you have a respect for yourself knowing what is shameful and you set your face against with respect that which is shameful. That's the reason why it's the opposite of being embarrassed. One who is embarrassed didn't know what was shameful, and then they find out, oh, I'm shameful, I'm embarrassed. No, this is that you know what's shameful, and you set your face against it with respect. You know what is shameful, and you set your face against it with respect. Illustration. You may have read in stories or books or heard stories of dads saying to their daughters as they're dressed themselves and haven't yet learned what is shameful, and dad, dad may say, you're not going out in that, young lady. Don't you know, don't you have any shame? Another passage, and this is why it's a problem, is because in Scripture it speaks of a generation who glory in their shame. This is the opposite of glorying in your shame. Glorying in your shame is that you know something is shameful and you wear it and you do it anyway and you're proud of yourself for it. Our society is full of pride. And most of the time when they're associating the, the stand-up for pride, pride, the things that they're talking about are glorying in shame. And it's so true in clothing. Your magazine racks at the grocery store lane are glory and shame. Shamefacedness knows what is shameful. And you set your face against what is shameful because you have a respect for yourself and for God. Does that make sense? Shamefacedness is knowing what is shameful and setting your face against it in respect. Shame is a key piece regarding clothing. Back in the very beginning in Genesis, 
It tells us that man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And as soon as this declaration of marriage is instituted in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, do you know what it says? And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because oftentimes in our society, when we think of nakedness, we think of shame. In fact, that's what's even inferred here. But you know, in the marriage relationship, in the privacy of the marriage bedroom, there can be nakedness where there is no shame. In fact, that's God's ideal. That's God's design. And oftentimes when shame enters into the marriage, the marriage bed and the marriage chamber, it's because there is wickedness. But in the ideal, there is no shame. But yet when sin is present, in fact, if we were to turn the page, we find that they realized that they had a nakedness. Chapter 3, verse 7, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made aprons. They knew that they were naked. What's fascinating is that their aprons of fig leaves were insufficient. And God had to actually clothe them, which I believe carries some significance. It ought to be in our minds that do we clothe ourselves in aprons of leaves, metaphorically I'm speaking, allegorically, or do we allow ourselves to be clothed in God's way? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. But this idea of shame is carried with nakedness throughout. I'd encourage you as families, it's going to be an interesting family devotion, but don't shy away from it. Leviticus chapter 18 is an important passage regarding the uncovering of nakedness within the home. The command was given to the Jews that, that they uh, keep God's statutes and live in them. And he says, I am the Lord. Verse 6 of Leviticus 18 says, None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. Why? I am the Lord. Nakedness has a righteous place in marriage, but in other contexts, it doesn't. And it is very important for us to be shamefaced about it, to know when nakedness is shameful. And just as a little hint, not a hint, declaration, it's shameful in any time outside of personal privacy or personal marriage privacy between a husband and a wife. It is shameful in all other contexts. Shamefacedness, setting your face against that which is shameful because you have respect for what is right. And sobriety. Hmm. What's that word mean? When you go shopping, do you stand at the racks and say, now, I wonder what, how I can dress myself with sobriety today. I wonder how many of you have... Oh, don't raise your hands. 
not a bad thing to do. Actually, it's a good thing for you to do. To stand at the rack in the store and ask yourself, is this modest? When wearing this, will I be shamefaced? It doesn't mean embarrassed. It means knowing what's shameful and having a respect for yourselves that you don't do what is shameful. And does it, is it with sobriety? Now, why do we use this word for people who are not drunk? We use this word, and most of us understand it in the context of drink and alcohol. Why do we use it? Well, because one who is not sober, one who doesn't pass the sobriety test, isn't all there. Their inhibitions, their understanding has been clouded. They're not able to think straight. They're not able to properly understand. That's what the word sober literally means. When a person is sober, it means that they haven't been drinking alcohol, which takes away their ability to perceive and to understand. And you know how alcohol does it. There's all different varying degrees of it. So dressing yourselves modestly with shamefacedness and sobriety, that means you have an understanding. An understanding. And this one is a huge principle. Do you have an understanding of what your clothing communicates to those around you? How does your clothing impact those around you? What does it communicate about yourself to others? Does it communicate to others that you glory in your shame? Or does it communicate to others that you are shamefaced knowing what is shameful and you have a respect that you're not going to do that? Does your clothing communicate that you're a Notre Dame fan? Nobody going to respect that one? Clothing re communicates all kinds of things, and not just by logos and symbols. I hate to use the phrase I'm about to use, but it's, it seems almost popular that, that, we, that people, that as if it's accepted and a good thing for you to dress sexy. Actually, it's not a bad thing for you. Sobriety understands what is sexy. Did you know that? Sobriety would understand that and know that that only has a place in the privacy of marriage and nowhere else. That's what sobriety is. It's an understanding. It carries on into other contexts of, of again, relating to the question of um, what is appropriate. Um, you know, if, if you're going to go out and, and work in the garden, you're probably not going to put in a fancy hairdo unless the hairdo is specifically for the purpose of getting the hair in a way to work. You're going to wear clothing that is for that purpose and design. You're not going to wear your wedding clothes out into work in the garden. You're, you're going to understand. All, this, is, this is where, in all of this context, it comes back to another passage that we need to look at. Um, there's a lot of things that I want to say, but as I said earlier, it's, I've probably, for some of you, already crossed the line of appropriate, appropriate things to say. But it's so important, and this is why Titus chapter 2, turn with me there to Titus chapter 2, so you're in, you're in 1 Timothy. If you keep continuing on past 2 Timothy, you'll come to Titus, and in Titus chapter 2, there is an admonition given that's tied back to the chaste living, that holy 
living, a purity. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, same concept, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So much of clothing in our modern society, by the way, there, are, there is such a thing as immodest men's clothing, too, and the way that men can dress is immodestly, too. But when it comes to women aspect of this, older women need to be teaching what it means to be modest in very direct terms and descriptions, and teaching what it means to be shamefacedness, teaching their daughters and other girls who don't have a godly mother what is shameful and what is respectful and how to set your face against that which is shameful. So important for the older women to be teaching the younger women what is sober, an understanding of the impact of clothing, the appropriateness of the fit, the appropriateness of all different aspects of your clothing. How do you do that? We need some women to step up and fulfill this role, beginning in their homes and in extension to other young women who are not receiving it in their homes or never did receive it in their homes. This is very, very important ministry. So what does it mean to be chaste, holy, pure? There's application to that. There's application to what is shameful. We're out of time this morning, but to, to give you just two principles, and these are principles that come from the Old Testament. Of some, there, There's a lot of places we could draw some specifics. I'm reluctant to go into specifics um, because there's a degree of subjectiveness in them, and there's also a question of appropriateness, because I'll be blunt, there's a lot of single young men here present who have no business um, having any critique or conversation about women's clothing, point blank. In fact, I'm convinced that many young men have really been messed up in their minds because they've been party to some conversations like that. It's not healthy, it's not good, it's not the business of a young man who's not married. It has an impact for men and mothers and girls, but there's, it's an inappropriateness of conversation. But I would like to present to you two aspects in the question of shamefulness in relation to nakedness. Turn with, your, with me in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 28. Just to preface this, this is in the law of Moses. More specifically, this is in the laws regarding the priesthood of the tabernacle and temple. And so you may immediately ask, wait a minute, preacher, why in the world would you be turning me here? There's a reason. There's a lot of descriptions regarding clothing throughout the Bible, different pieces of clothing, different descriptions and questions of nakedness. We've looked through some of those in the past. Um, 
But in this particular command, there's a principle given. So many times commands are given and the why is not given. But what's interesting about this one is that a command and explicit, specific instruction is given and then the reason is given. I submit to you today that the command exclusively applied to the priests of the Old Testament. But I believe the why transcends time and dispensations. The command is regarding the priest's garments. And in Exodus chapter 28, and verse 42, it says this, And thou shalt make them linen breeches, linen breeches, linen pants, short pants, not long pants, short pants. Linen breeches, why? To cover their nakedness. From the loins, even unto the thighs, they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come in unto the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and to his seed after him. So they wore long robes. Long robes. Went way down, way down, way down. But they're also supposed to wear under those long robes breeches, short pants, Specifically stated, to cover their nakedness. That's the reason given, to cover their nakedness. And then it describes how they're to be made. The covering of the loins to the thighs. The thighs were covered. God described it here. Again, this is the command given explicitly, directly, to priests. But the why is given here. And I submit to you that that why transcends time and we would be wise as Christians wanting to know how God would have us dress to take heed to it. Turn with me to another passage. And may I apologize for what I'm going to read here in Proverbs chapter 5. But I submit to you that what I'm about to read is appropriate because in his address and giving this, he addresses children I suggest to you that there are many passages in the Bible that may or may not need to be explained to children in varying ages, but I believe that every aspect and part of the Holy Scriptures, as you hold it in your hands, may be read even by children. It's important. Sometimes children get into trouble in matters because we haven't allowed them to naturally be exposed to it in the best way. They get exposed to certain aspects of sexuality in all the wrong places, how about we start here, right here? In fact, these are given actually to, O ye children. He says in verse 7, chapter 5, O hear me now, therefore, O ye children. And I submit to you one passage here in question of specifics and relating to the question of nakedness and in taking into consideration also Leviticus chapter 18. I encourage you, again, read that where it's commanded not to uncover the nakedness. And here is a, is a description here of, of a positive aspect of the intimate physical relationship between husbands and wives. 
And it specifically states of the wife in chapter 5, verse 19, let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breasts satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravaged always with her love. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravaged with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? It's also interesting that this comes immediately after another this passage comes after chapter 4 where the command is given, let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand or to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. What's presented here is the fact that in a marriage relationship there is a satisfaction. Well, you can just read it. And it's exclusive. It's exclusive. And so this part of the body is exclusive between husbands and wives, which means that women ought not to be displaying it to anyone other than their husbands. Is that direct enough? And husbands, you ought to be satisfied only in your wives and not be looking at any others, even if they do display them. So they ought to be covered because they are an exclusive and reserved in an exclusive relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and lest there be any gainsayers who throw to me a nursing infant, that's assumed. So here I present to you two very simple, basic understandings of definitions of how God has defined nakedness and of another aspect of the body that carries an exclusivity between husbands and wives. I submit to you that based upon both of those pieces, they ought to be covered. And not just covered, but there needs to be care taken that they not also be insinuated by clingy or tight clothing. This is a part of understanding from Scripture what is shameful. Again, in the marriage relationship, it's not shameful. That's what's actually going on here in, in Ephesians 5. I mean, it's, it's really the glory of Ephesians 5, not Ephesians 5, of Proverbs 5. It's a positive and negative is going on here. And as you consider the positive and the negative, it helps us to understand now how this works and how this functions in our lives. So I submit that to you, brothers and sisters. It does need follow-up. I don't know what we're going to do this afternoon yet. I, I don't know if we'll find somebody to watch our kids so Evelyn can come over yet. Don't know yet. But um, I ask you to please submit questions that you may have, specific or general, to either myself or to my wife, and we will share them together ourselves. But um, let me put it this way. My wife may answer some of them because I won't because I don't believe it's my place to answer them, especially in context outside of my own wife or daughters. And so I encourage you all this morning, not just women, but can I take this by extension to us all? How do we adorn the inner man? Can we come back to that? How's the inner man? How is our relationship, how is your relationship with God. You all look great this morning. God sees your heart. 
Does he see the way that you've adorned your heart as that of great price? Can I come back to that point? There's a lot of things that we could debate and could discuss, and appropriately so, and sometimes inappropriately so, regarding specifics of clothing. But can I tell you that when you have a conversation about clothing, always start it and end it with the adorning of the inside, the hidden man. That's key. Because can I tell you, oftentimes when the inner man is adorned appropriately, the other flows very naturally. Just as the lady saying earlier of following the Lord, trusting him. When the inner man is adorned, following him, no longer is this obligation that's hard and troubling, but is in joy. So let us all, not just women, consider this, this morning how we adorn the hidden man of the heart. Are we one with Christ and are we walking in his spirit? Or do we not know him? Does he not live in us? Or do we quench him? Let's walk in the Spirit. Let us be filled with the Spirit. Let us walk modestly. Let us live our conversation, be chaste, coupled with the fear of God. May we adorn ourselves, dress ourselves with shamefacedness and sobriety. But all the while, making the focus, adorning the hidden man of the heart. Great God, we come to you this morning thankful for your word. You have revealed to us truths that we may not grasp because of how much we have been influenced by our culture. So Lord, I pray this morning that each one of us this morning would purpose to adorn the hidden man of the heart and to allow your dear spirit and your holy word to wash us, to renew our minds, to give us understanding, sobriety, that is, according to your word, an understanding and perspective of life that is holy from the fashion of our society and cosmos around us. May we fashion in your cosmos for your glory, and for your honor. Lord, I pray that you will be with husbands and fathers as they are the heads of their home, as they have a perspective as a man to be able to share appropriately with their wives and daughters. I pray that you, your Holy Spirit, would work in each mother's heart and life and mind and give them understanding from your word of the importance of this matter and give them wisdom in the application of it. Help them to teach it. Help them to teach it with appropriateness, with grace. Help them to teach it balanced, that the focus not be on the outward man alone, but more importantly upon the inner man. Lord, deliver us from the temptation to be judgmental and cruel. Help us to have grace as we teach and as we instruct and give us wisdom in when to speak and when not to speak. 
Lord, we need your spirit to guide us in this matter. We acknowledge it as an emotionally charged issue. And so, may we have meek and quiet spirits as men and women as we follow and seek to obey you and your revealed word for which we again thank you. We commit ourselves to you now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.